I wanted to uh, divert away from the series on Philippians for this Sunday and next Sunday and uh, look at the subject of generosity. When you think of uh, certain subjects in the Bible, it's always helpful to have a working knowledge of the Bible. Now, what I mean by that is it, it can be helpful if you just have an idea of where in the Bible you would go, uh, let's say, to uh, explain about marriage. Where would you go? You'd, you'd go to Genesis chapter 2, uh, or you'd go to Ephesians chapter 5. If you want to read about God being our shepherd, where would you go? Which psalm? Psalm 23 is helpful just to have a working knowledge of Scripture, of the Lord's Suppers, Matthew 26, uh, the chapter on love, of course, 1 Corinthians 13. But if you want to uh, read about the necessity of being born again, where would you go? What chapter would be best? John chapter 3 with Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. And so if you talk about the subject of generosity, the premier passage in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So if you turn there with me, I think it's page 968 in these pew Bibles, uh, but I'm uh, using my own here, so I'm not positive of the page. 2 Corinthians 9, this is the premier passage in the Bible on the subject of generosity. I mean, there are plenty of passages that talk about money, and next week we'll look at, from the Sermon on the Mount how Jesus said we shouldn't worry or be anxious about such. Uh, but this morning we will look at this. Now, let me remind you, in 2 Corinthians earlier, the Apostle Paul has explained that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. So we are made new by the Holy Spirit. He begins to transform us. He uh, molds our life more and more to be able to die to sin and to live unto godliness, more to the image of Christ. And one of those areas is the area of generosity. Now, I would say that many of us, many of us, pastors included in the church, do not really understand what generosity is and how it should uh, be exercised in the life of the Christian. So I'll begin reading in verse 6 through verse 15. Hear God's word. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray together. Our Father, we need your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. May you mold our understanding of generosity to conformity to your will 
We pray in Christ's name. Amen. My desire is that at the end of this sermon, you would be enthralled with how God provides for you and what he enables you to do on behalf of others. The text, let me tell you the background of this. I, I passed over the opening verses, but the apostle of, of the chapter where Paul explains that as he has been traveling around the Mediterranean, preaching the gospel and starting churches, he's on his third missionary journey. And on that journey, he has decided to take up a special relief offering. The Christians back in Jerusalem, most who came from obviously Jewish backgrounds, they come to faith in Christ, they were suffering. Because of their commitment to Christ, they had lost jobs, they had lost income. They're having very difficult times just making ends meet. So on this journey, Paul has a goal to collect an offering, a relief offering, to take back to the church in Jerusalem. He has two purposes behind it. One is the relief itself. They need money to buy food and clothing and to take care of themselves. But secondly, he knew it could be an expression from the Gentile churches of unity. So he had a twofold end in mind for why he's taking up this offering. The church in Corinth had promised to send a gift, that they would take up an offering from among themselves and send it, and an entire year has passed and they've not done it. So they were behind on their pledge, so to speak. So Paul now is writing, and what impressed me this week is I had the privilege to study this again and to really think about it, is his tone. He's not caustic, he's not harsh, he's not you know, wagging his finger at them. He explains what should our motivation be in giving and what a privilege it is. So, as you know, the Bible speaks much about the subject of generosity. In the Old Testament, we have such proverbs as that in 1125 that says, A generous man will prosper, and he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. I like how the ESV paraphrases it, Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. Jesus, of course, said in Luke chapter 6, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So Paul begins with a very simple analogy that's used uh, at a variety of times in the Bible, and that is sowing and reaping. In verse 6, the point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. All of life is testimony to this principle. But here the idea is the farmer looks out at the field, and the field has been prepared, but there's no harvest, there are no crops. And so he doesn't just sit there and complain, saying, why are there no crops? Why is there no harvest? He goes out and he works. He starts to sow. And he has a bag of seed, as in those days. And he would reach his hand in, and he'd take it and throw it across the ground that had been prepared, and he sows. And, and what goes on seems to be a lesson here that, that there's an immediate change. No, there's a period of time that passes from when the seed is sown until when there's a harvest. Now, as he sows, he's losing. The sowing is an act of loss. He starts off with a full container, a full bag of seed, and each time he throws some out, he has less. 
And so by the end of the day or the end of the, the shift of working, he has less than when he started. But the harvest will be in proportion to what is sown. You always reap in proportion to what you sow. If you sow five acres, you should not expect to reap 10 acres. If you sow one acre, you should not expect to have a harvest on five acres. So you reap in proportion to what you sow. So the point here is the amount of the sowing determines the amount of the harvest. And the farmer looks at sowing as an opportunity. Well now, he goes on to verse 7 and talks about motivation and generosity. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He talks about the why in, in our giving. Our giving must come from the heart, and the motive in the heart is more important than the amount. Hey, I'm a pastor standing up here telling you that. The motive in your heart, in your giving, is more important than the amount. Now, Paul obviously needed a certain amount to take back to Jerusalem. Uh, with our terminology, $5 would not have done it. He probably needed a pretty substantial amount, but that's not what he focuses on. He focuses on motivation. So how are you and I to exercise generosity? First, notice the wording, each one. Let each one determine. So there's application here for all of us. No believer is excluded. The tendency of, of the, those who have very little is to think, oh, this only applies to those who live with abundance, who have all sorts of surplus. No, each one of us can do this, whether it's 10 cents, whether it's $10,000. Motivation is important. Secondly, each one, as he has decided, must give as he has decided in his heart. It's a conscious decision. Generosity involves the mind. It involves the will that we want to follow the Lord in this area. We want to be mature in our giving. And so just as we grow over time as Christians in maturity and prayer and an understanding of God's word and in using our gifts and in ministry to others and in evangelism, so we grow in the area of generosity. And we should become wiser and more sensitive to the Holy Spirit as he leads us and guides us in this area. He goes on and said about motivation, we should not give reluctantly, meaning that you feel you have to. Well, if I don't do this, God's going to get me. I, I was talking with a man who m makes a lot of money years ago. He, he doesn't live here now. And, and I said, do you, and we were talking about, he wanted to talk to me about money. I said, do you tithe? He said, of course I tithe. I don't want the problems that would happen to me if I didn't. Maybe that's how we look at it, grudgingly. I don't know his heart, but we might say, well, if I don't do this, something bad's going to happen. That's, that's not a proper motivation. Not under compulsion, he goes on. In other words, we shouldn't do it worried about what, other, what others will think about us if we don't. Both of, these, both of these attitudes rob generosity of its joy if we're doing it reluctantly or under compulsion. So let me just pause and ask you, think about what is your motivation in being generous? What is your motivation in giving? What was it today? What, will it, what was it last week? Is there joy in it? 
Well, let's find out how to have joy in it, if, if the answer is no. The last part of verse 7 says something that's, that's perplexed me for a long time. For God loves a cheerful giver. That almost sounds like conditional love, like a hoop we jump through. Why does it say this? Well, I think the answer is we imitate God most at this point. God is a giving God. Not only John 3.16, that God gave his only begotten son, but all of scripture. If you think God gave the creation, God gave life to Adam and to Eve. He gave Eve as a helper to Adam. He gave them the covenant relationship of marriage. He gives food and clothes and he gives children and we reflect his character when we give. When we are cheerful givers, we are imitating God himself. So how, how can you and I become more cheerful in our giving? This is the part that got me really excited this week is I learned some things I didn't know. And I, I don't know how many times I've studied this passage through the years. First of all, in verse 8, I know we've read it, but I want to stress it again. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. God is able. John Calvin, hundreds of years ago in that day, wrote that our lack of faith will always whisper in our ears. Do you not see that when you've given this away, there will be left less for you? To refute, and Paul, Calvin goes on, to refute this suggestion, Paul arms us with the wonderful promise that whatever we give away will turn out to our own advantage. I mean, don't we all, and if we were to state it honestly and, and truthfully, think, man, if I give this away, ugh, I don't know how I'm going to recover. I'm not, I don't know how I'm going to handle this over here. I need this so much. Well, that's, they felt that way in, in Paul's day as well. But notice the words that he uses there still in verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things. So God... God pours out all these things, not just some of them. Can I trust God to take care of me and meet my needs if I give generously to this other need? And Paul's saying, yes, God will supply that. We all know the story of the widow and the two coins in Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus and his disciples are standing there at the outer courtyard of the temple and had these big metal receptacles, kind of like large trumpets, where people would put in their offerings to go to, they were designated giving to go to different things. And, and there were these wealthy people pouring in large amounts that would have made a loud noise and people would have noticed it. If, if somebody wanted to be, to get some kind of public uh, recognition for their giving, that was an easy way to do it. And then this widow, this poor widow comes. We're not even told her name. And she gives these two, the smallest coins they had in those days. And she puts those in. And Jesus, it says in Mark 12, called his disciples to him and said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. Now, isn't that sweet? And I can tell you, there's not a person in this room, including me, that would urge a widow to give everything she had with nothing in reserve. If a widow in our church came to me and said, Chip, I'm down to my last thousand dollars and I, I want to give it to the church, I'd be the first person to say, I think you need to think about that for a while. 
I don't think that's being a good steward. Am I, am I alone in this? Nobody would urge that. So what is Jesus complimenting? She was not, I think, I think this is true from all we see in the passage. She wasn't like careless, oh, I'm just going to give it all, all away. No, her giving was an act on the promises from the Old Testament that God would care for the widow. And I think that was the motivation of her heart. She knew God was going to take care of her. So when she gave it, it wasn't irresponsibility. It was an expression of faith. And Jesus says about her motivation, she gave more than all the others because she gave all that she had. Now in verse 8, he describes the twofold result of God's grace and their generosity. First, they should have enough for themselves and God will increase or give them sufficiently so that they may abound in every good work. Not every possible good work, but every good work God ordained for them. And then in verse 9, he quotes from Psalm 112, verse 9. And it, it says, Psalm 112 is the description of a righteous, godly man. And it's just a long description. It's a great psalm. And then it comes to verse 9 of Psalm 112. And it says, he has distributed freely, speaking of this godly person, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now look at verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower, he's going to go back now to the sowing and reaping analogy. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So now we see that it's God who supplies. That as we give, God supplies back to us. Now, I don't know everybody's backgrounds here. I don't even know everybody here. But the prosperity gospel is a heresy taught in many churches in America and around the world. Sometimes it's referred to as the health and wealth gospel. Sometimes it's called the gospel of success. Sometimes it's called the gospel of seed faith. And the basic premise is that financial blessing and physical well-being are always the will of God for people that have faith. And that have faith, and to, to implement that, there needs to be positive speech. There often need to be donations to the right causes, and that that will increase one's wealth. And material and financial success is seen as a sign of God's favor. The Bible does not teach such, but it does teach here a principle of reciprocal blessing. When he, in verse 10, goes back to the sower, the God who supplies seed to the sower, now let's go back to the, the farmer, he's got the bag, he's got seed. He goes out and he scatters it on the ground. He's sown it. Who gave him the seed? God did. And Paul's reminding them everything we have, everything you have, everything they had, has been given to us by God the Father. So he is the one who has supplied us the seed to go out and to sow it. Now, the same idea was expressed in Deuteronomy chapter 8. In Deuteronomy 8, uh, speaking to the Jews, the Jewish people still wandering in the wilderness, God said about himself that he fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do good and in the end. And then he says, beware, lest you say in my your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten this wealth. 
You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Imagine back in the wilderness, a Jewish family, and part of that multitude wandering in the wilderness for 40 years before God took them into the promised land. And this man goes out in the morning, and in the morning there would be this wafer-like stuff on the ground as the mist, as the morning dew receded, it would be left there. God provided it. It was called manna for them to eat. We're not exactly sure, but it was wafer-like. We're not exactly sure what it was. So he goes out in the morning. They were to gather this six days a week. On the sixth day, they were to gather for two days' worth so it would not, they would not be gathering on the Sabbath day. He gathers up the manna. He brings it back to his family. And his wife says, Reuben, where did you get that? And he says, you are so fortunate to be married to such a wise, smart man. Look how shrewd I am. And I went out and I, I got this food for our family. You get the point. And God said, who provided that manna? Yes, there were human means, walking, gathering, bring it. God uses means. He didn't drop it into their tent. But yet, even when we say, well, I'm the one that went to school, and I'm the one that went to graduate school, and I'm the one who finished this, and I worked for 20 years, and I worked my way up the ladder, and I worked hard, and I sealed this deal. I'm the one. I'm the one who made. I'm the rainmaker. And God says, no, you're not. I'm the one that put it in your hand. Now, isn't that freeing? When you and I come to the area of generosity, we think, Lord, I'm going to give this seed away based on your promise that you're going to give me some more seed so that I can sow it. Okay, I've got to kick it into high gear. So when you and I have any kind of windfall, maybe an unexpected $10, maybe an unexpected $100, Maybe $1,000, and you, your budget was not planned with that in mind. You and I should ask, why has God given this to me? Rather than we immediately may think, well, now I can do this for myself. Maybe God has provided this seed to be sown somewhere else. I don't know. But he blesses us, as Psalm 67 says, that we may bless others. So are you predisposed to give? Have you decided in advance how you will give when there are increases in windfalls and unexpected income? I just think that's a wise thing for Christians to grow in. Young people, those of you that are here in high school or college or right out of college, you, you may be in your first job right now. Uh, you may not believe this, but a day will come that God may entrust large sums of money into your hand. And you may even laugh at the thought right now. You need to decide to decide now how you will use that then. People who have little and are not generous are rarely generous when they have much. I mean, if I can't give away um, $100, why in the world would I think I'll ever give away $1,000? So we grow in this area. Frank Barker was one of my mentors. I'm losing all my mentors, Jim Baird, Frank Barker. Those were men I called. They were pastors and veteran pastors uh, that I used to call and ask for advice on certain things. Frank died, you know, about a year ago uh, in his 90s. 
And he was an example, not only a great pastor or church planter of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham. Frank was never known as being a great preacher. He'd be the first to tell you that. But his life, uh, and especially in the area of giving, was a challenge to all of us that knew him. And I would go on an annual retreat with Frank and about 12 other pastors for a couple of days down to Orlando each January, and we, we would talk. We just stayed together for about uh, three days and would talk about ministry and get ideas. And, and he told me one morning at breakfast there was a man in his church, and, or he's telling several of us this, that uh, he was talking to him about the area of giving. He went to see this man, and the man was talking about tithing. Uh, the, of giving at least 10% starting there as a beginning place of your income. And the man seriously said to him, Frank, I make too much money to tithe. Do you understand how much money I make? I make too much to tithe. And Frank said, well, let's pray about this. So they bowed in prayer and Frank went, Lord, I pray that you would reduce the income of my friend Sam here <laughs> to the point where he can tithe. Look at verses 11 and 12. Uh, your giving will be cheerful by realizing generous giving multiplies praise and thanks to God. So when it says here in verses, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now he's talking about the offering going back to Jerusalem and that when they would give to that and he took it back to the, when he would take it back to these people, they would thank God for it. So he, he says, look at what your giving's doing. It's increasing thanksgiving to God. It's multiplying God's, follow, the followers of God in his kingdom. And you've heard me say before, if you are a Christian here today, it's probably because somebody somewhere at some time gave some money. Maybe they gave at their church and it helped pay the salary of a youth pastor who had a strong influence in your life. Or for me, I went to a large evangelistic meeting and they gave out literature. And I, some of that literature had a, a great impact on me. Well, somebody paid to rent that facility. Somebody paid the honorariums of those speakers. Somebody paid for that literature. Years ago, when I was a campus minister with our denomination, I met a young man named Bill. was not a believer. was somewhat hostile toward the gospel. He was from Chicago. And he had come to that university to study, and I had the privilege to lead him to Christ and to disciple him for a couple of years. He married a young woman he met in college, a, a both strong Christians, and they have a family. Now probably have their first grandchild, but I... Last time I talked to him, he and his wife were, were starting a new PCA church in Michigan. Why did that happen? Because somebody, a woman I never met in Birmingham, Alabama, gave the money through the PCA Foundation to help fund me to be a campus minister with RUF. So she, through her giving, increased praise and thanks to God. I was contacted as a pastor, and this is one of the great privileges I have that I wish all of you could see, but as a pastor of the church, there was a young woman who had lived here for a while, then she moved away, and she was raising support to be an intern with Reformed University Fellowship. And she, I asked her directly, I said, how much do you lack before you'll be able to move to the campus? She said, I need $5,000 more. She had expended, she had gone through every name she had, and she was at her wit's end. And until she raised that amount, she would not be able to proceed with going to the campus. 
So I said, well, our benevolence budget is committed for this year, but I tell you what, sometimes people give un, we get uh, donations to the church like uh, out of a will or something like that, and let's pray. Maybe God will provide. We don't have it in our budget, but maybe he'll provide. About 10 days later, I walk into my office and there's a check for $20,000. They came from a bequeath. I went to the elders. I said, let me tell you what happened. This girl, to some of the elders that work with our financial stuff, I said, she needs $5,000 more. I think God provided that. Can we give her 5,000 of this? And they said, yes. I had the privilege on the way home to call her on the phone. I said, I've got great news for you. You've got the $5,000. And it was just silent. And then there I could hear her crying on the phone. And I thought, I wish I had this on speakerphone for our entire congregation. What did that do? She not only served that year, she served for several years, several years, moved up into the director position and influenced hundreds, if not thousands of lives. It multiplied worshipers to God. I could tell you story after story. I know I'm about out of time, but I'm gonna keep going. Next March here in Macon is planned Hope for Middle Georgia. That's a special two night evangelistic event. Some of you have heard a little bit about it. You're going to hear a lot more about it. Uh, especially after the first of the year. It's coming to Macon with Dr. Michael Yusuf. There are enormous costs to put on something like that, uh, an, a middle Georgia effort like that. Who, how, where's that money coming from? It's coming from individuals in some businesses that are giving to make it happen. Imagine being there and lives are impacted. And 10 years from now, and 20 years from now, and 50 years from now, and to see the fruit from that, there's power in generosity. So whether it is in churches and orphanages and schools that we have built, our church is built in Haiti, or medical and educational facilities at African Bible College, there is power in generosity. Right now, uh, the church pays an amount of money for me to do these podcasts. It's about a year and a half now, I do this little thing called Five Minutes with God. Some months, there are 40,000 downloads. Uh, it, it doesn't cost them anything, and some of you listen to that. It's just an extension of the ministry of this church. Well, when, when were the seeds sown for that? There was a man in my home church that when Barbara and I went to seminary, he had a heart for seminary students. He gave $100 a month for the support of seminary students. I was one of several from my home church. And it, at that time, it cost about $1,000 a month. That's very little compared to now. That covered tuition. That was rent. We needed about $1,000 a month to live and exist and finish seminary. And he paid $100 a month. He died years ago. I'm still in contact occasionally with a couple of his daughters back in Alabama. But I went to seminary to learn to study and to teach the Bible. I never th had any aspiration of being a pastor. <laughs> That's comforting, isn't it? But I wanted to, uh, to teach the Bible. So where was the seed sown? When I do these podcasts and feel confident that this is what this passage says and this is how it applies, I think back to that man. That man who is giving multiplied praise and thanks to God. A few years ago, some of you here, we had a Wycliffe Bible translator with us for our missions conference. And in passing in front of our congregation, she said, we've for years worked to translate this language called shilluk, spoken by people in the South Sudan of Africa. 
And she said, we've finished the translation and now we just need the money to have it printed. Well, after she was finished, I went to the microphone. I said, how much money do you need? And she, she wasn't expecting that. She said, well, it, it, we've been told it will cost $80,000 to print the Bible. Well, that money came in before the week was up. And that Bible was printed. I intended to bring a copy into the pulpit and I forgot it this morning. I did a little research afterwards and 175 people in the South Sudan speak that language. And I truly believe when we get to heaven, there will be people that we meet that came to Christ through that Bible that all we did was give some money uh, for it to be printed. That's what Paul's talking about. There is power in generosity. In conclusion, as we leave today, my desire and prayer is found that what would hit our hearts is verse 10. That as we go throughout our day, we would think about God. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, you have showered down blessings upon us. Maybe we are not wealthy at all, but you've showered down spiritual blessings. Your Holy Spirit who comforts us and teaches us and you've given us Christian friends and freedom and maybe others have great amounts of money and Lord we pray that all of us in whatever stage and sphere of life we're in would trust you in this area and be those who not only give but give cheerfully uh, in faith even like that woman that Jesus commended that poor widow in Jesus name amen